Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. Democrats don't have grandstanders like Mitt Romney, Little Ben Sass, Richard Burr, Bill Cassidy, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Pat Toomey. And in the House, Tom Rice, South Carolina, Adam Kinzinger, Dan Newhouse, Anthony Gonzalez, that's another beauty, Fred Upton, Jamie Herrera Butler, Peter Meyer, John Katko, David Valadeo, and of course the warmonger, a person that loves seeing our troops fighting, Liz Cheney. How about that? The good news is in her state, she's been censured, and in her state, her poll numbers have dropped faster than any human being I've ever seen. So hopefully they'll get rid of her with the next election. Get rid of them all. Mike Murphy. Well, he worked his way through half the caucus there. You know, it's it's getting to be a long list, hey, man? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Welcome back from Orlando, Mike. I, I hope you got your picture with the golden idol. Uh, I was the innovator in the in the right corner there, wearing not only the the uh, three cornered um, uh, Revolutionary War hat, but I managed to make it totally out of aluminum to fend off the Q rays that the president <laughs> and I know are being beamed by Chuck Schumer through Jewish lasers to the sky and then down <laughs> for mind control. So none of that moved me. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, no, he. Um, you know, you could take uh, that run about Republicans, add a few adverbs, and it would be a pretty good AOC speech. You know, he's he's like the horseshoe theory. He's all the way out there now. Uh, and, you know, it's all personal grievance. That, that's always true of Trump, and we heard it again, though we didn't hear it with the kind of media platform he used to have, which I think is interesting. I bet you one guy who was listening was Scott Jennings, who is here yeah. with us today, former uh, White House political aide in the Bush administration, uh, uh strategist extraordinaire, CNN commentator, advisor to uh, uh, Senator uh, Mitch McConnell, who was not uh, a, a featured guest at uh, at CPAC, but was mentioned often uh, during uh, <laughs> during the weekend. Scott, welcome. Good to see you. Yeah, thanks, David. Thanks, Mike. And uh, yeah, I'm glad to be here. It's an honor to be here. And I, I listened to quite a bit of what happened at CPAC. And I talked to McConnell about it. Uh, I'm not sure if he watched Trump's speech or not. I think the last time he went there was 2014, back during his uh, previous re-election. So it's been it's been a few years for the leader. Well, unlike Trump, McConnell has a day job. You know, Trump <laughs> now being unemployed has a lot of time to hang around and, and bloviate. He actually here he uh, uh, he he mentioned McConnell. Uh, let's uh, listen. Take a listen just for your benefit, Scott. <laughs> a little Valentine here. Yeah. My endorsement of Mitch McConnell at his request. It's all right. It's all right. Now, he made a request. He asked for my endorsement. Brought him from one point down to 20 points up. And he won his race in the great state and actually the great commonwealth of Kentucky. And he won it. And he won it very easily. And I said, I wonder if I'm doing the right thing here. But you know what? I did. I did what I did. But he went from one point down to 20 points up very quickly, immediately, actually. And he won his race. And if you compare that to his other elections, uh, I'm sure you'll see something interesting. But you know what? We got a Republican elected. So uh, there you have it. He, he dragged your guy over the finish line. Uh, I know. It was really close. I mean, you know, Mitch McConnell has never not gotten more votes in an election than a Democrat. Donald Trump has never gotten more votes than a Democrat <laughs> in an election. And the idea the idea that he is dragging Mitch McConnell across the line after all these years. In is, his seventh uh, race uh, for the Senate. Yeah. Just asinine. Whatever. Yeah. yeah, but listen, guys. First of all, l- let me just say as an aside, CPAC uh, sounds to me like a throat lozenge. Uh, I know it's not. But it was kind of a, it is kind of a, it was a tonic for Trump. Uh, pure adulation, and it does mean something, doesn't it? I mean, I know you guys are not in that camp, but uh, 
the reality is there is a Trump base in the party. And, you know, that was the most vociferous part of it uh, that you saw. But we we just did a focus group at the Institute of Politics where uh, you're on the board, Mike, and Scott, you've been a fellow uh, with uh, Trump voters in uh, central Illinois. And it was interesting because, you know, what's reflected in the polls is reflected there. They do, uh, you know, they still support him. They believe he won the election. Uh, and they want him to play, even if they don't want him to be president again, necessarily, they want Trumpism, they want him to be in the mix, and it sounds, you, you heard the first clip, he's going to wreak vengeance in 2022 on everybody who crossed him. So what does that mean for the Republican Party? I sort of feel like the desire for Trumpism is not built on any policies, although I do think it's noteworthy that he returned to immigration in his CPAC speech, which was inexplicably absent from his re-election campaign. He just sort of forgot about it. But it's not really about the policies. I almost get the feeling that his his true base is really more animated by opposition to the media, opposition to the political establishment, uh, opposition to essentially the, the people we hate. And, uh, and, and yet they really don't have a policy identity. Uh, and so that's why his speeches are the way they are. You know, immigration may be the one policy identity they do have, but really, they, it's like they don't even think about Democrats. They just think about the media and they think about, um, you know, the people they hate. And it's it's really strange. You've got one political party that's treating an industry, the media, like the opposition party. <laughs> and, you know, the media doesn't appear on the ballot, of course. It's very bizarre. Yeah. yeah, he kind of channels the, the, the anger at those institutions, and then it becomes a tribal thing, our team, their team, and nothing else matters. So I'll tell you, I, I think we're in a moment of clarity. This whole thing reminds me of the great classic. That's why people original. tune into Hacks on Tap. Well, well, yeah, we're, I'm going to clarify moments. everything here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, call me the vizier. <laughs> There's a great old movie I highly recommend called The Thing. Of sci-fi movie there in the arctic and saucer lands and there's a something out in the wind anyway and, and it's during the cold war so it has that subtext anyway eventually the monster played by james arnest the space monster gets into the research station isolated in the arctic and of course the stock characters the professor's daughter the two-fisted pilot come on doc and the professor so they're all there <laughs> and they're gonna blast the thing they got a plan Things killed a couple of people. So, of course, the professor, basically Adelaide Stevenson, says, runs up to the monster. And they're all, Doc, what are you doing? He says, no, no, there must be peace. Listen, space friend, you're from a much more advanced planet. We can go forth together. I bring you friendship. And there's a beat. The monster looks at him, then pulls the ray gun. and That's the end of him. And so... The Trump thing where the Republican Party is kind of like, well, we can deal with them. We're going to get policy victories. He's obviously insane, but we can kind of work around that. He's got a lot of voters. He's a fact of life. Now it's war. You know, the, the monster is blown away. He's declared war in the establishment, and he's vowing primaries. So we have no choice but to go have the primaries. And the question is, in primary season for the midterms, is Trump still going to have a huge grip on at least half the grassroots of the party and be very powerful in primaries? Or is there a little bit of emperor has new clothes factor we're going to find out as new conservatives emerge, as maybe, as Scott says, policy has a comeback, and we revert to mean a little bit? That's the great unanswered question. So right now we're playing bluff poker. We know Trump's had a lot of aces, and we're going to see going forward. And what I like about it, as bad as it is for our ability to go win elections, to have a big internal fight like this, you know, we have to do it. The other, the monsters pulled the ray gun. There's no other, there's no appeasing choice. You, uh, you said the, the, uh, emperor has new clothes. You meant no clothes, no but clothes. he could have no, new well, clothes he might by have 22 new clothes and they could be striped. Orange, yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. Uh, so Scott, does that matter? I mean, I wonder, does he become then a, uh, is he a pariah then or is he a martyr? Oh, I, I think, I think he's a martyr. I, I think the, what, what he has done is he has successfully, you know, set himself up so that no matter what bad things happen to him, whether it's losing an election or being impeached or if he's criminally prosecuted, you know, whatever happens to him, you know, it's all them. They they are the ones who did this to me. And by proxy, they're doing it to you, too. And so, again, it, it sort of puts you in a in a party that isn't it doesn't really exist to, to win elections or to even fight for policies. It, it just puts you in a club uh you know, where the only thing you have in common with everybody else is fealty 
to one person in, in, in blind loyalty. And so my question is, are, how long are Republicans going to put up with losing elections? I mean, we control nothing. Trump lost twice the national popular vote. I mean, he clearly backed into the presidency because the Democratic candidate was, was terrible one time around. He got a smaller percentage of the vote twice than Mitt Romney. And I just, you know, at some point, if, he, if you've redefined the purpose of party from winning elections into something else, like, I guess winning means less to you. But I, I mean, how long are Republicans going to tolerate not being competitive nationally? Yeah, but you have a hell. Yeah. And the Republicans lost a popular vote seven out of eight elections. And, you know, obviously um, they've got a big problem there. But uh, there was a parade of Republican politicians who went down to pay homage to uh, Trump. Uh, some of them want to run for president in 2024, and they're betting that he's not going to run. And he did, he, he did not say that he was going to run. He left it open, which is a good fundraising uh, gambit. And if, you're, if you think you might get indicted, I think you want people to believe, as you said, Scott, that they're trying to silence him and, and by extension uh, them. But, you know, you saw Kevin McCarthy down there, Steve Scalise down there. You saw... Uh, a bunch of Republican politicians, um, and they're there not because they're thinking general elections; they're thinking primaries. They're thinking that. Yeah, but but I, I disagree a little bit. You can disagree a lot, man. Well, okay, I'll I'll disagree a lot. Uh, well, I don't disagree a lot on this, but there's a footnote to it. If you're a Republican potentate, you basically show up there because not showing up there says something about Trump. Showing up and, and, and just kind of checking the box shows you're in the tribe and all that. If you're running for president in 2024 or thinking about it, like half of them, you, you show up because, again, in a bigger way, not showing up is a, is a move. And it's sending a signal you really don't want to send in the Republican primary universe right now. So I don't think they were there to pay homage to Trump so much as they were there to check the box that they're members of the tribe. Those people were, but uh, but there's no doubt. Look, Trump did the most important thing for the Republican Party, or for at least for Kevin McCarthy and some of the Republican leaders thinking of 2022. He did the most important thing that they wanted him to do. He said he wasn't going to leave the Republican Party. He said he wasn't going to create a third party because if he creates a third party, that is a disaster uh, for House Republicans, and that's the that's the gun he had cocked at their head. So they defused uh, that. But he, you know, the the problem for the party is, what if he knocks off all of those uh, or a bunch of those ten uh, House members? What if he uh, what if he dominates the primaries in Ohio and Pennsylvania, uh, where there are open seats for the Senate? I, I mean, let me ask you that, Scott, because uh, McConnell has to worry about that. What if you get what if you get, you know, some uh, right wing lunatic candidate for the for the Senate in uh, Pennsylvania or even Ohio? How do you get Ron Johnson reelected? Who's, you know, gone completely? You know, he's with the space laser crowd, the Jewish space laser crowd now. You know, what's the outlook from the from? I don't want to say the bunker that would be, but what, what's the outlook? Having <laughs> just said it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's out there. So it's a great question uh, because, you know, uh, Mike alluded to this earlier. You know, McConnell gets up every day and his job is to run the Republicans in the Senate and try to get the majority back. Trump gets up every day and his job is to run his mouth. <laughs> and so these are two different jobs. And McConnell's only sort of mission in life is just to try to have control of the Senate. And and I think Trump's already demonstrated he doesn't care whether the Republican Party has control of anything. Yep. I mean, he, he doesn't care whether the party runs government institutions, which means he's not thinking about, well, who's the best person to nominate or to, to endorse in a primary? Uh, uh, and, but McConnell is. And McConnell's seen this movie before in 2010 and in 2012. We nominated you know, pretty horrific Senate candidates in a number of states that delayed the Republicans getting the majority until 2014. I think McConnell's view is. It's going to happen again. We have a 50-50 Senate. There's opportunities. They like Nevada. They like New Hampshire. Uh, we obviously have defensive situations that you mentioned. And the whole thing depends on whether you nominate people that can win in those states in a general election. I actually think in some cases, Trump and McConnell may be aligned behind the same person. I could. In, in Ohio is a good example. Jane Temkin, the Ohio Republican chairman who's running now, she's pretty well-liked by a lot of different people. So I could see a, a state well, like Jim that. Jim Jordan where has jumped in with... Uh 
Josh Mandel, the former state yeah. treasurer there. So yeah, I know. I, I just but but to, you said it. If Trump were to get behind one of them, that person would be by far and away the favorite. So I'm not I'm not sure they're going to be on opposite sides of every race. But I do know this: uh, it would be exceedingly difficult to win back the Senate if we nominate people who cannot compete in general elections just the way it happened in the 10 and 12 cycles. And that's that's where McConnell's head is. And uh, and how you get Trump to participate in that is at this point is probably impossible. And you're just sort of hoping that he he doesn't do the wrong thing in every state. Yeah, it's kind of different between the Senate and the House, because in the Senate, you look at the Pennsylvania's, you know, less margin for error there particularly if you get a real Trump wackadoodle candidate in the state seat you'd like to pick up. In the House, some of the courageous 10 are from districts that if a, a Trumpy Republican won the primary, they still have a pretty good shot at winning the district. Not all. Uh, so, you know, but the Senate stakes are really, really rough if, if Trumpism runs wild. Because we're in, you know, it's, it's a hard one to begin with. There's a shot, but it, it, it's not, no lock. And you're going to have the, the midterm phenomena, which can go either way of is it punish Biden, like historically is often the case, or can Biden get enough vaccines? Well, you got redistricting in the middle of that, too. Right, right too. That, exactly. Which gives Republicans an advantage. Bottom line, Trump has equaled losing for the GOP since the day he was sworn in. We, you know, we, we've, we've just lost just about every category. We've gone backwards. Trump has been anthrax. And what the, the primary voters are going to have to decide, or a majority of them, you don't need them all to win, is do we want a cult that's about a guy or do we want a political party, which historically is about policy and about winning so you can enact the policy? Historically, it's been the other. Now now we're at a, at a point where we're going to have massive primaries to figure that out in 2022. I think one of the one of the enduring lessons of, of this is going to be that Republicans, a lot of voters, people that weren't Republicans but became that way because of Trump, I think they actually care less or maybe not at all about whether we actually win the elections because they have lost all or almost all faith in the institutions. So if you mm-hmm. so if you're a voter and you believe that Congress, no matter who's in charge, never does anything that helps you, the little guy. If you believe that the whole thing is rigged against you, if you believe the institutions are hopelessly broken, why would you care? Why would you care if you actually ever won an election? Why would you care? That's reflected in the fact that uh, turnout goes up when Trump's on the ballot and goes down when he's not. They, you know, people come out and vote for Trump as a matter of, of uh, as ma- to make a tribal statement, uh, not, not so much to... Uh, uh, you know, well, to blow to, it up. To align, certainly yeah. not, yeah, to blow things up. To is, punish is, the system, not to try to affect it. Okay, then let's take a break right here, and we'll be right back. Bright Cellars. Yeah. It's the wine subscription service that helps you find wines you love while making wine more accessible to everyone. Yeah, I love this because I love wine. Bright Cellars is the wine subscription service that helps you find wines you love without the normal intimidation and wine pretentiousness. I know how you hate pretentiousness that you you know we're all used to. If you are a new wine drinker or someone who's been drinking wine for years, Bright Cellars will pair you with wines you love and provide a unique experience no other wine service can. And they even ship in bottles. No more of those boxes for me. So here's how you do it. You first (laughs) have to take the famous Bright Cellars quiz. 30 seconds long, and they learn from a couple of questions, and I've done this, how to pair you with six unique and personalized wines based on how you answer the quiz. Each Bright Cellars box that I'm shipped offers a unique wine experience that includes a wine education card or a set of them. These education cards talk about the region of each wine, tasting notes, serving temperature, food pairings, and many other things. So you can learn a lot. And Bright Cellars works with their in-house sommeliers to source wines from all over the world. They source wines from Spain, Portugal, Australia, South Africa, and many other countries. Each box is sure to have a new wine you've not tried before. And if you don't like a bottle, Bright Cellars will work with you to include a replacement bottle in your next box and adjust that taste profile. Members have access to concierge services to help place custom orders, answer any questions they may have, or help adjust their account. Each of their concierges take part in wine education classes with our sommeliers to continually improve their expertise. If you're a Hacks on Tap listener, you can get an incredible discount. We are giving you, get this, 50% off Whoa. your first six bottle order from Bright Sellers. 
All you got to do is go to brightsellers.com slash hacks. That's brightsellers, C-E-L-L-A-R-S dot com slash hacks. And again, you can take that 30-second quiz to get your wine matches and receive 50% off your first six-bottle order. It's a great deal to try new wines from all over the world, so head to brightsellers.com slash hacks for 50% off your first Bright Sellers box. Well, let me ask you a question about McConnell, Scott, as long as we have you, because he, you know, there's a lot, he, he took a lot of crap uh, for this answer that he gave uh, on uh, Fox News a week or so ago. Let's hear that. If the president was the party's nominee, would you support him? Uh, the nominee of the party? Absolutely. So let's uh, deconstruct that, because, you know, when I heard, I mean, he, look, people said, how can you say what you said on the Senate floor? Because they said, how could you vote for not to convict and say what you said on the Senate floor, but how can you say what you said on the Senate floor, associate Trump as closely as you did with a with an insurrection that ended in death and pillaging of the Capitol and so on, and then say that you'd absolutely uh, support him? What would have happened if he had said n- no? Yeah, th- th- I think I think what McConnell was reacting to about that question was mostly, will you support the nominee of your party, which he has, you know, obviously for his entire professional career. And I think it would be massive news if the Senate Republican leader said well, there are certain Republicans, Donald Trump, maybe others that I wouldn't support if they were the nominee. Massive news. Would he be the Senate or Republican leader anymore? Yeah. I mean, that that's the thing. He's he's not just a rank and file guy. He's got a whole conference to be responsible for. And his, you know, his job is not to make himself an issue. You know, he, he does not want to be an issue for his members, especially the ones that are in re-election campaigns or are going to be in primaries. I think that's frankly one of the reasons he voted to acquit because he didn't want to make his vote. You don't want this primaries to be a referendum on, on would you have voted with McConnell or would you have voted uh, uh, to acquit Donald Trump? We've talked about this here, Scott. I mean, it, it, there is a pretty healthy debate you can have about whether splitting the baby actually worked. <laughs> I yeah, mean, you know, I, I you, agree you could you, I, you I, may I, have gotten the worst of both worlds there. The oldest, the oldest rule for canny old Pauls like Mitch is don't go bust a big move. It's kind of like the trial lawyer. Don't ask a question you don't know the answer to. Don't bust a big move that's not going to change anything because you spend political capital and you don't affect the outcome. So Mitch, Mitch doesn't do the traditional answer, which everybody uses. I'm always for the Republican nominee. I'm a Republican. Instead, he says, "No, I can't vote for Trump." Well, now. Mitch is in a big war with Trump that helps Trump, doesn't help Mitch, gives him caucus trouble, and he's talking about it for three weeks. And it gives Trump the establishment versus Trump fuel he's looking for. So I, I get on a moral plane, yeah, I, I want McConnell to slap the handcuffs on Trump. And I think, frankly, in Mitch's dream journal, that's happened a few times. But in the political maneuvering for the leader of the Senate caucus to go pick that fight to no end, that won't change anything with Trump right now is just a totally non-McConnell move. You know, when McConnell's moving somewhere, there's going to be a result at the end. And now is not the time or place for him to make that move. So I understand. I understand the the, the fact that voters who kind of always want the Sorkin movie where, you know, McConnell grabs the Constitution and, and does, quote, the right thing and everybody gets emotionally satisfied. That is not the hard practical world of politics where Mitch McConnell's been effective. It's just not worth the action. So listen, you guys, we, we should talk about the guy who actually is president, despite what the people <laughs> at CPAC think. And we, we'll get to that in a second. But I got to ask you one thing to put a button on this, which is. What do we learn? I don't believe Donald Trump's going to be on the ballot in 2024. I mean, I may live to eat those words, but there's just so much time. At a minimum, let's acknowledge there's a lot of time between now and then. And lots of things can happen, uh, you know, both uh, acts of God and acts of justice uh, that may impede his ability to do that. Did we learn anything about if he isn't a candidate? Now, what was interesting to me is that he got they polled people at CPAC where they had a golden idol, life-size golden idol of Trump, and he only was the choice of 55% of the people there. A third of the people there said they didn't want him to run. Yep, yep. I, look, Trump's back to where he loves being, which is threatening rather than doing, so we can just screw with the system and get attention. We're going to have a lot of that now. Who knows if he'll run? You saw Ron DeSantis, uh, the governor of Florida, which it's home state. You'd expect him to be well-received. But he's showing up in other places as 
you know, all of a sudden viable because, you know, he was defiant on the on the virus, I guess. Uh, Christy know, know him as well from uh, South Dakota. What, what do we, is there anything to discern from this? Uh, you know, and like this, everybody's going to roll their eyes because it's like 2021 and we're talking about 2024. <laughs> well, it's accent tap. I would is. say it's wide open sans Trump with Trump TBD. I mean, DeSantis is in the right place. I mean, if the party is motivated by who does the media hate or who is the media picked on, who do they pick on more than DeSantis? And you know, he was always juxtapositioned against Cuomo. Uh, and so he, he benefits from just being whipped by the media for the last year. And so in that show, I also thought he gave a good speech. He gave a nice address. Noam did okay. I'm personally bullish on Cotton and Tim Scott. Uh, I think they both have, have terrific chances as well. So, But I, I tend to agree with Mike. It's, it's a wide open race. All right, so let's leave Disney World and uh, come back to the real world. I'm detecting a very unhelpful uh, pattern here of anti-Florida insults, my friend. <laughs> you know, it, remember, it's a mega state. It's a yeah. player. No, I. You no, Democrats will learn to win. It I one can't day. hold the whole state of Florida responsible for pockets of insanity. I can't. <laughs> I, that would be unfair. Well, that is I, Orlando, and uh, I won't do it. So we actually have a president, uh, and he's trying to. Uh, accomplish some big things here. Uh, one of them is, and the biggest one right now is this COVID package. Um, I presume both of you guys believe that at the end of the day, he's going to be signing this thing in the middle of March. Something like it, but yeah. And uh, what do you make of this uh, flap over, you know, it was interesting to hear Trump say, you know, Democrats don't have grandstanders. It's like, I'm sure there are people in the White House who are kind of rolling their eyes at that uh, because Democrats have a lot of free thinkers uh, as well. But there is a real passion about this minimum wage issue. It's the the uh, parliamentarian ruled it out of the package. I thought it was interesting that a bunch of people were, you know, from the left were urging Kamala Harris to overrule the parliamentarian. I don't think Trump, I don't think Biden wants her. Uh, to do that. But, you know, I, the, the next part of this whole discussion is sort of like real politic versus passion, governing versus running. Uh, it's different. And it seems to me um, Biden is is bumping up against a little of that here. Yeah, I, I tend to think the $15 minimum, they knew all along it was never going to fly. They threw it out there. He kind of said so, you know, remember he, he told... Uh, he told reporters in the corridor of the of the White House, gee, I don't know if that's going to make it. And that was weeks and weeks and weeks before it was ruled out. I also think they threw that out there as a distraction away from the biggest travesty of this bill, which is that such a small percentage of it actually goes to fighting COVID. Very little of it goes to opening schools now. Really, virtually none of it goes to opening schools now. Very little of it goes to vaccine distribution there's so much money in this that goes to non-germane stuff. But all the media coverage of this thing has been nothing but the stimulus checks and the, the minimum wage, which has been a total distraction from what I, Rep most Republicans would say is a huge amount of spending for, for really no urgent reason. So I, it, maybe, it was smart, maybe it was smart to have that, that shiny object hanging out there. But I'm asking a different question. I get the Republican talking points on this. I mean, the fact no, no, of the matter is Republican I, I, insightful policy analysis. No, I understand. Well, I, 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 and I get the fact that there are two of you guys and one of me. For a change, <laughs> I'm enjoying this. I can do that math. But, um, <laughs> but you know, we do have a, an economic crisis out there, and there are a lot of people suffering who haven't gotten paychecks. There are a lot of small business people who've had to, who've suffered tremendous losses uh, as a result of this. And... Uh, this this is a uh, a package that addresses uh, that these school districts that know they're getting money uh, out of this package can also advance money uh, and uh, do things uh, uh, with the monies they have as a result. But leaving all that aside, I'm asking a different question. I'm asking a political question, which is this fight over the minimum wage, and um, you know there there will be disquiet uh, on the left. 
that this is not in the package. Well, yeah, that that's going to be the thing. I, I saw AOC on TV doing the off with the head of the Senate parliamentarian. You know, from the progressives' point of view, the Senate is a ball-peen hammer, and it's time to start pounding with the majority. They they don't really, you know, the, the Senate was designed that's to That's kind keep, of traditionally what the House thinks about the right, Senate. Right, that's what I'm saying. The Senate was designed to keep the knuckleheads in the House from doing crazy stuff. And the fact is, at 50 votes, reconciliation, it, it, it doesn't work. The, the Democrat-appointed parliamentarian is right. And even if they overrule her, it'll get stripped out because of mansion and, and cinema. Bottom line is it's dead there. The question I'm watching is in the next phase of this, will something like, and by the way, I'm, I'm against a federal minimum wage. It, it's only 1.5% of the labor force and half of it's under 25. So we're talking about kids' summer jobs. Um, but the Manchin's idea for 11 bucks and Romney and Cotton's idea for 10 bucks, the real benefit there, and I think that it is pretty good policy, is if you got to have a federal minimum wage for the, I don't know, it's like uh, 19 states or whatever that don't have one, you index it to inflation. So you don't have the squeeze we've had. Um, there, there's something there, I think, if Manchin leads on it, that might be doable if the left will take it. And they seem to be making this a crusade. Now, it's ironic to me because the people who scream loudest from this are from places where the state minimum wage is already 12 bucks or higher. You know, so for their constituents, if they argue the cost of living in New York or whatever, they're almost there already. Um, so anyway, I, I think it's one of these great issues where it's a rallying cry. But on, on second look, there are a lot of implications to it, which actually politically in various states make it much less of a winner than the rallying cry folks think, which is one reason the mansions and the, the cinemas of the world aren't for it. Even as Trump was carrying Florida, uh, increased minimum wage there uh, won overwhelmingly, and that's been true around the country. Minimum wage increase is really popular. We haven't had a federal minimum wage increase in 12 years, uh, and uh, everything else has gone up but it. Uh, and so uh, it is, I, you know, I think there's going to be a minimum wage increase. And the question is just what it's going to look like. But, the, you know, the because I think the politics are going to demand it. The fact that you have all these Republicans who are at least showing some leg on the thing reflects how popular it is. You know, the thing that interested me was, um, you know, the, that the left calling on Kamala Harris to overturn the ruling of the, chair, of the uh, parliamentarian. And to me, it underscored something that I said here like long, long, long time ago when before Biden took office. Kamala Harris is in a uniquely difficult spot uh, because, first of all, she is the deciding vote. So she is, you know, there's going to be pressure on her like this on other issues as well. Secondly, she, you know, Biden people don't like to hear this, but there is a presumption that no one will share that he's not going to be a candidate again in 2024 for the simple reason that he'll be 82 years old. That makes her the putative front runner for president. And the left knows this. And uh, you which know, means they're easily disappointed, which is what's going to happen. Well, and it means that they think they've got leverage, and I think it puts her in a really tough spot, a really interesting spot that she's going to have to negotiate, navigate. Well, I keep saying if this were literature on the theory that life imitates art, the big Democratic primary will be damaged front runner Kamala Harris versus Stacey Abrams, two African American women competing to be the nominee from the right and kind of the Biden center left. Excuse me, from the left and the Biden center left. Uh, well, if there are two, there'll be more than two. Yeah, two, but we, we know the two. demography increasingly of the primary, particularly if you're yanking the Iowa caucus out. Uh, if you're a strong, credible African-American candidate, your power in the South is very strong. So it, it, you're right. There, there's going to be a fight eventually. The question is what turf it's going to be on, because she can't be both. She can't be Joe Biden and acceptable on policy in a passionate way to most progressives over time. It's just too far of a bridge. I think she has to decide who who she wants to be, and and not just for purposes of winning a Democratic nomination for president, but for purposes of winning an election uh, and broadening her appeal. And I don't, you know, I think, you know, I personally, I think it's a an, uh, it's a great thing for America. Uh, that we've crossed another threshold, that we have uh, a woman as vice president, that we have a woman of color as vice president, that with first South Asian, uh, you know, woman and all of that. I mean, it is it is progress uh, in, in our history. Um, but it, she doesn't want that to be the whole of who she is. 
And if I were her, I'd be wanting to be the point person in the in the Biden administration uh, on economic issues uh, that affect uh, working families across the country. I'd be traveling to uh, states uh, in the Midwest and elsewhere, and I'd be listening to people and their concerns uh, about uh, their own prospects, about their communities. Um, I would not want to be uh, simply an iconic figure because of uh, the historic nature of of. of yeah, no, she needs an identity. Absolutely. Uh, but I got to ask you a question because I always hear this thing. So I've always wanted to ask a good Dem this question. What is a non-working family? That working modifier. Am I a non-working family? Or, well, know, I never look, know I've what been that, around you a lot, Mike, and I would, I would say yeah, you, you are say a non-working family. Uh, <laughs> but uh, if, if, you, if you're asking me about you personally, I'm talking about people who live from paycheck to paycheck, people who have uh, – uh, you know who 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 don't have uh, 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 the cushion of uh, of big stock portfolios. I'm talking about the people who, frankly, haven't been able to sit in front of a computer and Zoom for the last year without fear of losing a paycheck or losing their business. Um, you know, there are a lot of those folks in places that, Mike, you've had great success uh, over time in the Midwest. Um, yeah, no, I, I know what you mean the by country. that. It's just always been I know, and you're Democratic busting my bitter. chops. I knew you were. Well, no, it's just I, I just, a dev- drew, I drove the dev- right through My it. favorite is we never spend, we invest, you know. But but that working family thing always bugs me. The problem that Democrats have is a lot of those working families want to vote for Trump. Uh, so there's a cultural aspect to this. It's not just economic policy. Look, some of it is because they have a com- this, this focus group was really interesting. It confirmed what we've seen elsewhere. But if you get you know, you the we ask these folks. Well, who do you you know? Where, where do you get your news? Well, I don't really trust as as Scott says. I don't really trust the media. Yep. You know, so I go to sources I can really trust. Well, who are those? Well, Hannity, uh, Tucker, uh, and then they went off to some you know kind of uh, even fringier uh, kind of uh, social media uh, outlets. And if you get all your if you get all your so called news from those places that that shapes your thinking but a lot of it has to do with a sense uh that uh of of uh aggrievement of loss of resentment of a sense that you're disdained that there's mm-hmm. they're disdained and a, and a sense of change that is 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 uh working against them and there's a lot to penetrate there i mean i've said it here before i i'll keep saying it I don't think Democrats can just write off 84% of the counties in this country and have a stable governing majority. And so they're going to have to, Democrats are going to have to uh, have these dialogues and conversations. And no one understands that better than Biden, who actually speaks in the language of respect and dignity. Right. That, that is his hat. And trick, he believes it. He connection. believes it. He believes it. Yeah. 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 She, she, but she's a different kind of appeal, right? Much younger, different generation, you know, different. Uh, just a different identity from from Biden's career shtick altogether. It strikes me that if they are to get reelected in 24, to replicate the seven million vote victory. Um, I mean, look. I mean, if you're if you're someone who says Hannity and Tucker are your main news sources, it's I, I find it unlikely that you'd right. be voting for Kamala Harris in 24. However, all these suburban people in Phoenix and Atlanta and other places that did not vote for Trump that have have moved away from the uh, from the Republican Party, those are the ones Harris has to figure out a way to keep. And so I agree with you. I'd be traveling, but I wouldn't be I wouldn't be worried about converting Tucker Carlson's audience. I'd be worried about permanent conversion of the of the suburban audience. And yeah, I'm not just suggesting. By the way, there was one woman in the group who said, "Well, I also sometimes. I mean, my father would be turning over his grave, but sometimes I listen to Lester Holt. Uh, <laughs> you know, just to get the view from the left. And it's like, wow." <laughs> Uh, can you know, I'm sure Lester would be uh, shocked to hear him characterized that way because he's sort of your classic uh, news anchor man. But um, no, I Scott, look, I don't, and I don't think Democrats necessarily are going to gain majorities in these places. The question is whether they can get enough votes, as Biden did, uh, to win, and can they pick off the occasional Senate seat in uh, some of these states. Uh, look, Kamala, Kamala Harris is a fine candidate for uh, what has become the Democratic base, which are metropolitan areas, uh, cities, yeah. suburban areas, uh, college-educated voters, uh, and urban minority voters. Uh, but 
you know, as Biden showed, I mean, he ultimately his margin was 44,000 votes in three states. And if he didn't have some crossover appeal, um, he would not have uh, he would not have won the presidency despite everything. So that's a dilemma for Democrats. But but just quickly, the, the Dems have to learn the, the lesson that our friend, the Democratic pollster Mark Melman often says. And, and Biden, I think, had this figured out in the subtext, which is. People, especially on the left, often make the mistake of thinking politics is all about economic class when often it's about culture. And Biden was culturally more comfortable. The suburbanites who are worried about taxation and big government, the blue collar workers, people earn a living with their hands. Biden sent kind of a comfort raid based on his generation and his persona. And that was gold. That was worth more than a lot of 10 point plans about what we're going to do. For That's you true. Although it's really what was interesting in this group was they were. Um they responded very uh, well to child care tax credits, for example. That was really resonant uh, with these folks because they all understand the struggles and they th- and and they want to support families. And that's the reason Romney and others have come forward with plans like that. Um, so there are areas of common. Now, I agree with you uh, in the main. All right, let's take a minute to hear from one of our esteemed sponsors. Mike, I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm always looking at a screen now more than ever. And whether you're an avid news watcher, and I know you are, or you're in serious need of a distraction, which I know you uh, also I know, are. We know I do. Yes. Unplugging yourself is easier said than done. So one of my favorite ways to rest my eyes and still get the content I'm itching for, by putting in my Raycon wireless earbuds and listening to something great like Hacks on Tap. I'll tell you, whether you're catching up on your favorite news podcast, listening to hacks or an audiobook, or powering through your workout with a pumped up playlist, that's me. A pair of Raycons in your ears can make all the difference. And I'll tell you, I one of these fell off the truck for me, Axe, <laughs> and I got one. And I'm telling you, it sounds great. And the batteries are good. And it doesn't have those dangling wires or stems. It's simple, reliable, and plus, and this, for a fashionista like me, this is a big deal, Raycons come in a range of stylish colors, but always with that comfortable in-ear fit for a more discreet look. Yeah, six hours of battery life. That's really, really great. Raycon's offering 15% off all their products for our listeners. And here's what you've got to do to get it. Go to buyraycon.com slash hacks. That's it. You get 15% off your entire Raycon order. So feel free to grab a pair and a spare. That's 15% off at buyraycon.com slash hacks. Buyraycon.com slash hacks. Listen, we got a couple other things I want. Uh, we we got to cover before we get yeah, to the mailbag. Saudis, can we do Saudis? And yeah, we should. You know, Biden. Uh, I, I said to you guys beforehand. There's the line in uh, Hamilton where uh, George Washington says to Hamilton, "Winning is easy, young man. Governing is harder." Well, Biden is, isn't a young man, and he didn't need anybody to tell him that. Uh, but we've seen it in several different ways on foreign policy. Uh, and one was on the Saudi Arabian situation. MBS now. You know, what we knew uh, before has now been codified. He was the mastermind of the assassination of uh, uh, of Khashoggi, the journalist, uh, the brutal assassination. Um, and uh, there have been sanctions issued uh, against everyone uh, but him. And it's a reflection of the fact that the Saudis are strategically important to the U.S. Uh, in that region in a whole range of ways. In, including uh, on uh, you know on Afghanistan, uh, on dealing with Iran, uh, you know on um, on just a whole range of issues. Not to mention uh, on energy issues. So well, Israel too. I mean, there's a yeah pa- Palestinian going on for issue. ten years. It's huge. Yeah, and you could see today they're talking about you know the U.S. Is, wants to complete an Israeli Saudi. Um, uh, you know, treaty. So, um, you know, this is the reality of governance. I mean, I'm 10 years out of the White House, but I I know very well what it's like to run on, you know, Mario Cuomo said you campaign in poetry and govern in prose. The prose is challenging. Yeah, I I, am. Right after this all happened um, during the Trump years, I actually got a chance to interview the uh, Israeli ambassador, Ron Dermer. He actually made a sort of a three point statement to me that just made a lot of sense at the time. 
you know, he thought Trump should make it clear that human rights atrocities won't be tolerated. But he, he also said, essentially, you know, we have to accept the world as it is. And finally, that we have to do everything possible to circumvent the Iranian regime. And his, he said to me that the United States just cannot undermine its relationship with Saudi Arabia because he thought that the crown prince was a force for modernizing Saudi Arabia vis-a-vis uh, -vis standing up to Iran. And so he, it was an interesting you know, way he looked at it. There's no doubt that is true. It's also true that uh, modernizing, this modernizing crown prince uh, engaged in one technique that is as, as old as mankind, which is he slaughtered his opponent. Yeah. Uh, and if you're the United States and you stand for human rights and you believe in journalism uh, as a, a, a beacon of light, um, you know, you, you have to stand up in some way. And it is an excruciating choice. Look, uh, they, uh, uh, the, the U.S. today sanctioned Russians uh, around the uh, murder or the murder attempt on Navalny. Um, we know who ordered that. The bottom line is, I'm a real politique guy, but I think the Biden guys were too soft on this. The Saudi thaw is the kingdom pursuing its own interest. They're not doing it because they're nice guys. They're not doing it because they, you know, they, they're sweet. They're pursuing their interest. And I think they could have taken a little bit more of a beating from the U.S. on this. I'm not saying blow up the relationship, but uh, two degrees hot around the sanctions, a little more condemnation. I, I, I think we were a little soft. Biden was. I'm with you on that. Let me just add one other element that is in their calculus. I mean, I agree with that. The other element is the, the Saudis are pursuing their own interests. They could pursue them with China. And China, and believe me, China's not going to lecture them on human rights. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do what we did. I mean, the United States needs to stand for something in the world, needs to practice its principles here at home as well. But Yeah, it, it was a notch or two too light, uh, in, in my view. I, I think yeah. it could have been more. But it's done. Okay. Let's move on to the political story of the week, which is Governor Andrew Cuomo, the turbine, the unstoppable, the man with the COVID show. He wrote a book about curing COVID before he did is now in the political scandal of his life. He's on a fast train to a little place called Frankenville. And I think, you know, these allegations are serious. I don't know what's true, but he looks to me as a, a consultant type, as somebody really tangling himself up in a bad net. So what's your take on all this uh, thing? Do you think he'll survive, both of you guys? I'm actually, uh, 24 hours ago, I was thinking, eh, maybe he rides it out. And then, you know, before we hopped on this morning, it, you know, there was another accuser and it just seems like, Things are piling up on him, and I don't, I don't know. It's uh, it's getting pretty ugly, and uh, I mean, look, if the Democrats, you know, held themselves to the standards they, you know, put up for Brett Kavanaugh or you know, virtually anyone else, he'd already be gone. I mean, there's actually evidence that Cuomo met these people that have accused him. There was never any evidence that Kavanaugh ever even met Christine Blasey yeah, Ford, yeah, and so, yeah. and so, and so, if if you want to. You know, if you want to be credible on these issues, you have to hold your own people to the same standards. And I recognize folks in politics all the time execute double standards. But in this particular case, it's fairly obvious, given his own shifting statements, A, didn't happen, then, then it was immediately, well, maybe it happened, but it was misinterpreted. I mean, he's clearly already admitted these interactions occurred. Yeah, well, that, I, I don't want to, and I don't want to relitigate the um, Kavanaugh matter. I, I have a different interpretation of, uh, of that, but... Um, look, that that piece on Sunday in the New York Times uh, was as um, compelling and as credible an account uh, of any of these Me Too uh, cases because the young woman spoke to people contemporaneously. She went to her supervisors, uh, reported this. They transferred her to a place where she would be away from the governor. Um, and, you know, it's a really, really bad spot. And it comes on top of a probe about how they handled uh, uh, data from nursing homes at the beginning of this crisis. That has prompted a, 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 a you know, a, a criminal probe at a minimum. You know, my, my thing about this uh, harassment, and I, I worked with uh, Cuomo when he ran for attorney general. I know him well. Um, you know, one thing about him is he plays a very, very hard, hardball of politics. And that's been... Um, documented recently as well which means when the floor creaks there's not a lot underneath it there aren't a lot of yeah, people who are racing no to hold you up he is alone 
out there. And I suspect generally these charges, uh, you know, there, there's not just one. Uh, there are many. So, I mean, I, I just think he has a huge problem. I don't know if he rides it out or not. What it does mean is that um, uh, he is, he is at, at a minimum, he's not a viable, not going to be a viable candidate in 2022 for what he hoped would be the fourth term that eluded his, uh, his, his father. I think he, that much we know. Whether he can ride it out, I think that's becoming more and more uh, questionable. Yeah, when has the New York Times not been able to murder a Democratic elected official in New York State? You know, he's he's got all the wrong enemies in the wrong primary in the wrong moment. And I think another one will pop up. And at that point, he'll be broken. But I'm guessing. I don't know anything. They've rarely written about a more tenacious personality than him, though. He will uh, he will ride it out as long as he can ride it. Oh, yeah. It, they're going to need out. a steel cage and, you know, tranquilizer guns. But he's, a, but he, he's <laughs> in a world of hurt here. And, yeah. um, and he's and, alone, you know, as you say. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, I have to say, again, as someone who has been, uh, who has worked with him, that account on Sunday was, I thought, stunning. And, you know, the, the idea of a, of a governor in his mid-60s propositioning, a, and that's what he was doing, a 25-year-old aide. I mean, he told her to turn her tape recorder off. He knew what he was doing. Yeah, I, if I, it was a Fortune 500 company, he'd be gone. You know, I yeah. mean, the question is special. Stand, it, this is going to turn out like the old joke about the drummer Buddy Richard's funeral. 20,000 people are going to show up for his resignation. Why? They all want to make sure he did it. he's just that guy okay let's take a break right here for a word from our sponsor and we'll be right back you know Gibbs every once in a while uh, on Twitter people will write in and say Axe you make me nauseous but nauseous nothing to joke about it's like getting stuck in the back of a car and you're kind of a little bit hemmed in and you just you get that feeling and it starts in your stomach. It's not. Yeah. A good and, and, and like you're on your way to something good, a, a celebration or party or something. And now you're nauseous and you can't get rid of it, except there is an answer now and it's called Relief Band. Tell us about Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all-natural relief with zero side effects, zero, for as long as needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now through Relief Band, it's available to all of us. Here's how it works with Relief Band. It stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you're sick. Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. If you know somebody who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift. I'm telling you, Relief Band works. We know from our own experience, we sent one to our engineer who often gets nauseous during our shows, and he reports 100% cure. Don't fall for those cheap bands you see in drugstores or on your Instagram feed. All right. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for our Hacks listeners. If you go to ReliefBand.com and use promo code HACKS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to ReliefBand, R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D, Dot com and use our promo code HACKS for 20% off plus free shipping. It's listener mailbag. Yeah, there we go. It's still 1965 here on uh, <laughs> Hacks on Tap. Scott Jennings was not born when that music was... Uh, <laughs> Okay. First of all, if you have a question for the hacks, send it to us at hacksontap at gmail.com. Hacksontap at gmail.com. You can also send comments, insults, anything you want. We check that stuff out. And please don't forget to rate us on iTunes, share our podcast, which you can do on their app, do all those sorts of things because it really helps us. And if you have an opinion, write a review. We'd like to hear from you. Okay. First question. Scott, for your, uh, 
inaugural appearance, we're going to let you take the first uh, question. And it's an extension of what we were talking about before. Can you game out the landscape for Senate races in 2022? How many Republicans appear in play? How many Democrats? Yeah, great, great question. Very important for the Republican perspective on this is that uh, there's real opportunity in Georgia, Arizona, Nevada and New Hampshire. I'm not sure in what order yet, but those are four offensive categories where Republicans are very bullish on the opportunity to compete. I think the Senate races in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania are major problems. Uh, we don't know if Ron Johnson's going to run again in Wisconsin. And even if he does, uh, you know, he's really positioned himself well outside of where I think a purple state would likely be. Pennsylvania could be a cluster in a primary over there. So those are two which is an open seat. Those are two major, major problems. Uh, I feel a little bit better about North Carolina than those two uh, to hold. So right now, uh, I can tell you this, Mitch McConnell is bullish on the opportunity to take back the Senate uh, because he really believes in these offensive states, I think, more than some of the media are, are giving the Republicans opportunity for. So, um, uh, But as we discussed in this show, it, none of this will matter if Republicans nominate people who <laughs> simply can't yeah. Can't win an election. It often comes down to candidate quality. If they can get a Chris Sununu in New Hampshire, there, yeah. there are a few stars out there who could really put us in a good position. If we're doing nuts, then we're not. Do you guys think that Sununu is going to run? I sure hope so. He's the he's a he's a winner up there, in my opinion. Yeah, he's a friend of mine, and I I think it's there goes the primary. Yeah, no, now I, yeah, I just cost him. <laughs> Ovid Lavmontane will come back now and aluminum suit and beat him. Uh, but yeah, I think, uh, um, I, I, you know, he, he's been an effective governor. He's handled the Trump thing pretty well. So uh, I'll say wait and see. But I, I think it's uh, he'd be he'd be serious. Challenge there. to Maggie Hassan up there, who's a, a friend of mine and uh, a former governor. But uh, he's a very popular figure up there. Yeah, he, he's governed well. It was a blow to the Republicans that David Perdue decided not to run again in Georgia. And he's one of the biggest Republican vote getters in Republican history in that state. And so now it's unclear who the nominee is going to be. So that I think that downgraded that one for us, but still, still definitely in play down down south. I think. Yeah, that, that one's going to be very candidate driven. I think. Yeah, uh, totally agree. Coming out of a fairly open Georgia primary, I don't know. Has Collins ruled himself out again, or is he maybe going to make it? Anyway, it's it's going to be down to can we nominate a competitive candidate. I predict Kelly Leffler has retired, though, which was our last theory about a competitive candidate. <laughs> and sold her basketball team, I saw. She sold her. Well, I, I'd sell it, too. They came out against her. All right, David, for you from Casey, what's your take on the extent to which bringing back earmarks, and you have to explain what they are, would usher in more bipartisanship? I don't know about bipartisanship, but I think it would give um, more tools to leaders and the president uh, to negotiate uh, and I have to say this, I was an ardent opponent of earmarks when we ran uh, with Obama in 2008. I was a supporter of doing away with them uh, when he became president. I came to believe that that was a mistake, uh, a mistake because I do think having the ability to um, have members of Congress, uh, uh, you know, have a, a, a fast-track way to get resources into their districts for real needs in their districts, assuming that it's policed properly and it isn't, you know, a bridge to nowhere or a scam, uh, is really important. And, and I think le leadership is less effective without them. Um, I would be for bringing them back. And Scott, you've lived in this world. What, what's your sense of it? I think when they got rid of earmarks, it was another example of Congress ceding its authority you know, to do stuff. I mean, they, they have ceded authority massively to the executive branch. Getting rid of earmarks did that. They've also ceded a lot of authority on transportation to the states. You know, they block grant this money to the states. And so I think if Congress wants to begin to try to reclaim some of its constitutional clout, this is a step in that in that direction. Uh, and for, for people like, you know, I live in Kentucky. You know, I live in a small rural state. And uh, when you have Mitch McConnell and Hal Rogers living here. I mean, there won't be that many opportunities for states like ours to uh, to pick up some things that are very necessary, but wouldn't be of any interest at all to the delegation of California or New York. And so I, I my view is uh, there, there is some good that can be done with it if properly policed. Uh, and if you believe, as I do, that government institutions and branches of government ought to defend themselves, Congress ought to reclaim some power here. Yeah, no, I agree. Look, it, it was 
it, it helps make things work in Capitol Hill. And all in all, the cost to look, nobody, well, I, I hope it comes back so I can see, live to see the building of Axelrod Steam Town somewhere in rural Michigan or whatever, whatever the ridiculous earmark. Would I'm be. inviting you to the groundbreaking. <laughs> because there's always some ridiculousness to it, but it is a, it's an important tool. No, but I think the, the, the goal has to be to hold the ridiculousness down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, hey, listen, uh, a guy named Mike, and I'm a little suspicious Not here, me. starts me. off by saying, is Mike Murphy as smart and insightful as he seems to be? Oh, that's no, me. that's not what he wrote. <laughs> he said, I've been getting emails from political fundraiser uh, organizations that say they have a deadline and need to raise X amount of dollars by a certain date. I think a bunch of them went out, by the way, from the Trump super PACs and PACs and so on uh, during CPAC weekend. What is this all about? Is this a real deadline or just a marketing ploy? Oh, no, it's important information. And when in doubt, go right to the PS on those letters and do exactly what they tell you to do. No, it's <laughs> something called technique. I once had a fun time way back in the 90s when I got to attend the Max Sackheim dinner. Now, who the hell is Max Sackheim? He is a legend of what's called direct response, which is that kind of uh, advertising, and he's the guy who invented, and this is a real throwback, David will remember, uh, the Columbia Record Club, where you'd get 12 free albums, but then they would send you one every month for the rest of your life and yeah. charge you for it. It's called the negative checkoff, because you had to ask them to stop, and most people don't like to do anything, so it would just continue. So, bottom line, it's called technique. The candidates are not really writing you. There's a professional copywriter. And good technique has a call to action, which is send the $12 or whatever. It's called HPC, highest previous contribution, and send it now. Because if it's a Republican, the illegals are already in Kansas. They're marching north. We need the money today. <laughs> if it's an incumbent, if I don't have another $104 for TV ads, AOC is going to take over Utah or whatever <laughs> it is. It's all about urgency and call to action. My personal advice to people is give money to candidates, but only hold about 75% of what you're going to give an election cycle for after Labor Day. So when the dollar gets of to the, the most election important, year. Yeah, of the election year. So the dollar gets the most important spend and never, ever take direct mail copies seriously. I'll just add a point of personal privilege. I have been heartbroken as a former dollar-a-year consultant to the NRCC back when we were broke and couldn't afford consultants in the early 90s. And some of the direct mail copy I'm getting via email from the NRCC about Donald Trump. It is unbelievable. It's even up close to the, you know, election was a fraud stuff. And it is there. there there's just been a total. It's always been a little borderline because hot direct mail brings in more money. But but right now the, the rules are gone. And it's heartbreaking to me as an old committee hack to see that. The fundraising copy technique that drives me crazy right now are the text messages that say, <clears throat> give money now and unlock 5x matching or yeah, 9x yeah. matching or 100x matching and i yeah. for the life of me cannot figure out what in the hell that means and so i get all <laughs> these text messages and, it, and i guess they're trying to engender a sense in people that if i give ten dollars today then it actually is worth a thousand dollars but I, but i just i i mean it's i get hundreds of these text messages and it, it me it's it seems crazy yeah, it, it, it's unbelievable yeah well the other thing is it just clutters up your damn phone i i feel like well, i'm weed i spend hours weeding every day uh getting uh, rid of same. all this stuff and as soon as you do they go grow, growing back i remember but this will just make uh, scott laugh i remember back in the 90s thinking about could i jump out a third story window at the senate committee when the postal police raided us uh for a piece <laughs> of technique and direct mail that uh the same guy who invented the suzanne summers thiocizer had come up with and by the way it raised a fortune and helped win races but uh yeah that, that whole world of direct mail copy is uh uh, is uh, don't trust it is my my consumer advice anyway go ahead bring us home we're, we're running over i want it this last call though I, we just have to get it in last call all right i just want to run a little clip from late night with seth myers last night that uh, off of the cpac convention and he was focused on the appearance by the inimitable ted cruz let's take a listen to that no one wants to hear your whiny little right-wing stand-up act. You sound like a 50-year-old accountant trying comedy to distract yourself from your divorce. This crowd is electric, which is nice for me because my state doesn't have electricity. Hey, if you don't like these jokes, don't blame me. My daughters wrote them. 
In fact, Cruz really did start out his smarmy little tirade with a joke about the firestorm he caused when he fled to a luxury resort in Cancun as his constituents were freezing to death in an unprecedented blackout. I gotta say, Orlando is awesome! It's not as nice as Cancun. (laughs) Oh, you are ice cold. Sorry, I meant to say your constituents are ice cold because they didn't have heat for a week, but good singer. So... I mean, I'm speechless that Ted Cruz could go to Orlando and make a joke about fleeing his state in the middle of a crisis. I mean, who does that? Comic gold, I'm telling you. We're seeing him at Funny Bones in Cleveland next week. He's a barrel of laughs. His entire speech, I'm just going to get on my soapbox for a minute. So <laughs> yeah, first right. of all, he ex- he in his, his speech theory was, I'm going to excommunicate all country club Republicans from the Republican Party, forgetting, of course, that Donald Trump lives at a country club and owns country clubs. So at the same time (laughs) he came to praise Donald Trump, he also accidentally excommunicated him because he likes to golf and he enjoys fine dining. And this, of course, followed Jim Jordan the other day, who tweeted that Republicans are no longer the party of wine and cheese. We're beer and blue jeans. And I was thinking, how, how much wine and cheese do they consume at Mar-a-Lago on a daily basis? I mean, they got lots of wine and cheese down there. And so you've what got the Cruz resort in Cancun for that and, matter. And, and, and the finally, yes, I, Cruz did not address whether Ritz-Carlton goers are in or out of the modern Republican Party because he may have accidentally excommunicated himself. <laughs> I mean, it just the absurdity of this entire thing, all for the purpose of shrinking the size of the smaller of the two parties. It is the most absurd and self-defeating thing. And if you don't think that the Republicans in the suburbs who voted for Joe Biden this time around aren't paying attention to this, think again, because they are. And it is exactly how not to have an elastic enough brand to win the next presidential election. Yep. That's my outrageous. The lesson that we, we just can't seem to learn real quick. Mine is just a quick apology. Last week I made a joke about my favorite member of Congress from the planet Q, and I made a reference to two-digit IQs trying to imply she was stupid. It also can be interpreted, and this is something I just didn't know at the time, as a clinical measure of intelligence that can be involved with the treatment of mentally disadvantaged people, and I mean to insult nobody. So I feel bad about that, and to uh, one person who wrote me a very thoughtful letter, again, want to apologize. So with that, let's land the ship. All right, guys. Great convo. Scott, hope you come back often. There'll be more bizarre things to talk about in the future. And, uh, Mike, I will see you soon. Thank you, Scott. And, Axe, on to next week. It was an honor. You're two of my favorites. Thank you. Take care. Thank you, guys. guys.